normally I will kind of start on a specific verse because we've been kind of going through John in more or less a, a verse by verse way. But in John chapter 9, uh, it's a, a chapter I've, I've grown to really appreciate. Uh, it's got you know, the healing of a blind man, but that healing takes place over six verses and the chapter is 41 verses long. As is typical in John, John is a lot more concerned with the significance of the, the healing than the healing itself. And so the majority of the chapter is concerned with that. Uh, in this particular case, the Pharisees come in and investigate, and we see the man coming to no see more and more about Jesus Christ and the Pharisees becoming progressively more and more blind to Jesus Christ uh, in, in that chapter. And we're kind of in the middle of that section where the Pharisees are investigating that, but we didn't really leave off on a specific verse, and so I decided just to say John uh, chapter 9, part 2 here. Uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and read the entire chapter here in, in a second. But you know, at, at the surface, this is a, a story that seems really simple, but as you look at it, it be becomes more and more profound. And we're going to kind of go back, I, I'm hoping, at the end of, of today and look, look at this a second time uh, from a, a different perspective that I think will really make this chapter come alive for everyone. Um, so we're, we're going to... Um, Start by kind of reading the chapter up through verse 39. Let me go ahead and do that now. <clears throat> we won't be looking at the earlier verses so much. We looked at those last time, but I think it's still helpful to hear them. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that, this, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had... Uh, seen him before as a beggar, were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought the Pharisees to the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud in my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the, man, the, to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, 
But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why? Uh, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he that is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Um, and I, th I think we'll go ahead and stop there. We're going to be kind of looking at some of uh, bigger picture questions out of, out of this section, but we'll, uh, we'll come back and we'll look at some, some more things verse by verse as we continue. Um, one thing that we see very frequently in the Gospel of God, or sorry, the Gospel of John is irony. John seems to have a particular affection for, for catching instances of irony and, and pointing it out. And that, that's even more on display in this chapter than it usually is. And I think one of the more pronounced ironies, if not maybe the dominant one in this chapter, is that we've got the Sanhedrin sending a delegation of experts to investigate, you know, an apparent miracle. They, they're very skeptical of this, of course, and they begin with the conclusion that the miracle is inauthentic, and they're looking for evidence to support this conclusion that they, they've come to investigate it with. Um, they, so th they're starting with a, a conclusion. Now, the blind man is initially confused about what's going on, and as the delegation becomes more and more confused, about the, the lack of findings incriminating Jesus. They, they can't find what they were expecting and hoping to find. But at the same time, the blind man is becoming progressively and progressively more aware of what's actually happening. Um, what kind of reasoning does this uh, formerly blind individual use? You know, is it simple or complicated? It's kind of what I'm looking for. And if you look at his reasoning, it, it's logical, but there's nothing complicated about it. He's simply seeing things that are obvious and recognizing the obvious for what it is. You know, the Pharisees you know, are extremely educated. They have memorized many books of the Old Testament. They, they spent their lives studying it. They're very well uh, studied in you know, logic and rhetoric. 
and they're using any amount of mental gymnastics they can to avoid that same truth that someone who's just looking at this in a simple way can see very clearly. Um, it, it's not intelligence and careful study or logic that are necessary to dis discern the basics of the gospel, but it's a regenerated heart. And as we're seeing, you know, th this uh, man that was formerly blind has not only been given physical eyesight, but more importantly, he's been given spiritual eyesight. And that's the real theme of this chapter. One of the things that John will very often do to kind of help us to catch what he would like us to see in things is he'll reuse a word a number of times. And so as you're reading anything in Scripture, but especially as you're reading the Gospel of John, if you see a word come up several times, there's a, a really good likelihood that John wants you to see that that's important for this section. And in this section, one word that comes up quite a bit, or at, at least a concept, the word doesn't always appear with it, would be knowledge or the word know. And so I've kind of gone through and, and found instances where knowledge is important, and we're going to look at three different parties. We're going to look at the man that was born blind that Jesus healed, then we're going to look at the Pharisees, and finally we're going to look at his parents. And so I've, I've got some kind of key verses, at least, that, that knowledge is a big idea about. You know, initially, when they, uh, they ask him, you know, where is Jesus? He says, I do not know. Um, Later, he says, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind and now I see. And later, when he's talking to Jesus, he says, and, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? So we, we see a, a lack of certainty in any knowledge in this individual. He, when he sees things, he, he, he recognizes them for what they are, but he doesn't have a great deal of knowledge, but at least he knows it, we'll, and we'll come back to that idea. If we look at the re religious leaders, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, the word no is not in there, but you, you, they are very confident that they know something in, in this verse. It's wrong, uh, but they're, they're quite confident in it. Um, so for the second time that they called the man that had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Again, similar apparent knowledge, but uh, they're wrong. In uh, John 9, 29, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Now, uh, knowledge is, is again coming up, and we'll, we'll come and, and look at that in a little bit more detail, I, I think, in, in time. But let me uh, go to the parents. Uh, and uh, part of this chapter is a little bit shorter, but knowledge is important there too. But, so this is the parents speaking. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. So the idea of knowledge is important. What does John want us to learn about knowledge in this chapter? And I think that you know, the first with the, the man that's born blind, he, he seems to realize at least what he doesn't know. And, and that's a, a good thing. Um, he comes to know more and more as the story unfolds. But I think that he's at a real advantage here because when he doesn't know something, at least he knows that he doesn't know something, which is a, a significant contrast to the religious leaders. They know that Jesus is not from God. They know that Jesus is a sinner. Where Jesus comes from, they don't know. But, uh, and that's what they should know. That's what they need to know in, in the chapter. 
Um, most of what they think they know is entirely wrong, and they, they don't know the most, most important thing in the chapter, which is where Jesus comes from. If Jesus did come from heaven, he's the only source of spiritual knowledge, and this is an idea that's come up again and again in, in John previously. Um, but they're so confident in these wrong positions that they hold that they're unable to see Jesus for who he is, and they're unable to investigate that more important question. The blind man, at least, knows what he doesn't know, and he, he comes to see right through the overconfidence and the incorrect condemnation of Jesus, and eventually he comes to see Jesus for who he is. Now, the man's parents, I think, are, are significant here. One of the things I, I was kind of realizing is that John didn't need to include them as characters in this. Um, the, the story would work reasonably well without them. They, they do add a little bit to the story in that they really do confirm that this person was really blind from birth, but I, I think they're more important than, than that. Um, they, they know that their son has been healed. Um, that they, they probably know more certainly than anyone except the son himself that, that he's been healed. But they're afraid of what the implications of that knowledge would be. If they were to act on that knowledge and simply testify to the truth of what Jesus did, it's going to cost them something. And so they refuse to testify about what they know because and that knowledge ends up not doing them any good. The section ends, as, as we saw, with the man being excommunicated from the synagogue. And you know, this is probably something that we can't really picture. If Spring Meadows were to practice church discipline on a particular individual, it, realistically that person could simply go to a, a number of other churches that would be fine to take them in. Um, they shouldn't. They, they should respect the discipline of the elders and they should you know, deal with that discipline, show genuine repentance and be admitted back into the church. But in practice, you know, it wouldn't be that big a deal. They could simply go to another church and most churches wouldn't um, make a big deal out of that today. Uh, back then, if you were excommunicated from you know, the Jewish synagogues, you, know, you were living in a community that was almost entirely Jewish. Um, you wouldn't be able to go to any synagogue to worship, but you would be a social outcast. You wouldn't be invited in, into people's homes. You wouldn't have friends. Uh, it would be a very difficult situation. It would be hard to find employment. Um, so, you know, th this is not a small thing that has happened to this individual. Um, you know, there, there's a kind of a, a subtle irony in, in the words of the leaders when they cast him out. They say, you were born in utter sin. Um, and um, th 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 that's a reference to why they believe that he was born blind. The irony is that you know, um, they, what they mean by that is that, you know, the, that they're saying that his blindness because he was you know, born of, in, in sin. But by saying that, they're also acknowledging what they really refused to acknowledge before, that the man really was blind and really was healed. Um, and they, they're, they're so intent, though, on just discrediting him that they don't really care. <laughs> it, it's kind of an interesting irony, at least. I, I, I thought so. <clears throat> um, let, let's uh, go ahead and continue with the chapter, but again, we're going to come back to some of these ideas. So Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, 
Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees heard him, and sa heard him uh, saying these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you see, your guilt remains. <clears throat> now, in, in some ways, you know, verse 39 really speaks for itself. I, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time unpacking that. The religious leaders are, are confident in their own ability to see, and they're blinded by that confidence, uh, including you know, the, that confidence in some you know, incorrect information that they very firmly believe but is absolutely wrong. They, they show themselves uh, to be blind, uh, and they're judged in the sense that they claim to see but in fact are blind to spiritual truth. Those who realize that they need Jesus for spiritual sight, you receive that sight from him, even if they're physically blind. Um, but what I want to focus on you know, is the comments of the Pharisees in, in 40. Are we also blind? Um, now, you'd kind of expect Jesus just to say yes, or probably say it better than that, but that's not quite what he says. He says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say that you see, your guilt remains. And so what does he, he mean? And here's, here's my best effort to answer that. Um, they, they have in front of them all they need to see, and they, they have mentally all that they need to see. They have very clear evidence that Jesus is who he claims to be. God has blessed them with sharp intellects and the ability to reason. They wouldn't have risen to the top of Judaism without that. Um, they've got everything that they uh, need to have in order to see Jesus for who he is, much, much more so than the blind man who does see Jesus for who he is. But they stubbornly refuse to do that. You know, the, their blindness is, is real, but it's a willful blindness. It's not one that's uh, imposed on them by external circumstances. There's there's a sense in which they do see that truth. You know, it's so plain a blind man can see it, but they don't want to see it. Instead of seeing what's plain, they rearrange and suppress the information that they've got in order to avoid seeing the truth. Um, anyone who's ever been in an online argument, or better, who's kind of watched one from a safe distance, um, you, you can often see that someone simply will not accept something reasonable. Um, you know, they're, they're wrong, they're spectacularly wrong, any reasonable person can look at that and see that they're wrong, and they're willfully blind to it almost. And that, I think, is kind of what's going on here. Um, you know, if, if we get something wrong you know, on an online argument that's wrong politically, well, it's not that big a deal in the, the big scheme of things. But to reject the gracious, gracious provision of salvation freely offered by God you know, because of their insistence on earning salvation themselves is both you know, a sinful act and it's willful blindness and it's a mistake that's going to be eternally disastrous for them. Um, another thing that I think is worth looking at is, is what this tells us about the doctrines of grace. Um, you know, if we only look at the doctrines of grace from the perspective of man's inability, then the doctrines of grace appear harsh and this is one of the big objections that a lot would, would hold to that. Um, you know, God chooses some, and He doesn't choose others. And that's entirely true, but it's also kind of a one-sided view, and it's important to see both sides. Uh, the, those that aren't chosen for mercy aren't just you know, innocent bystanders who were kind of unlucky enough not to get picked. They're 
actively suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And the, the Pharisees here are ex examples of those who are not elect. Um, now, possibly some of them you know, later came to see the truth. I'm not saying that they're all not elect, but they're behaving as, as those who will eventually be shown to be not elect. Um, they're perfectly able to see God for who He is. Nothing is standing in their way of responding to the free offer of the gospel except for their own stubborn refusal to see um, it when they, they have everything they need to see it. Um, they're freely choosing to reject God's offer and they want nothing to do with the actual God of the Bible. You know, they, they may claim that they believe in God. They may uh, you claim that they believe in the scriptures, but they're showing that they don't. They, they're, when they say that they believe in God, what they believe in is a God of their own making, not the God that's actually revealed in scripture. There's nothing remotely unjust about their condemnation. Now, the, the miracle of God's grace is that we would follow that exact course if we were left to our own devices. It, it's God that's graciously opened our eyes to his infinite worth and enabled us to see him uh, through the scriptures. You know, we, we deserve that same faith that the Pharisees are blindly heading towards, and we would willfully and enthusiastically follow that same path. But God's been merciful to us, and it's opened our eyes spiritually in a way far more powerful than you know, healing someone that was just blind from birth. There's nothing even slightly unjust uh, regarding God's treatment of the reprobate. The miracle is that uh, God has chosen to show mercy to us. So we can look back over this chapter, and we're going to look at a couple different ideas. Um, we, we can see you know, this idea unfolding about sin and blindness. At the beginning of the chapter, we see a man that's born blind. Everyone assumes that his blindness was a consequence of sin. And so the question is, you know, whose sin? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? Um, it doesn't, neither seem to make sense, and I think that's why the disciples originally asked this question. But you know, we too are born blind in our sins. Um, the Pharisees, when they were unable to disprove that an actual miracle took place and they were unable to refute you know, the healed man's testimony about v Jesus, eventually resort to dismissing the whole episode as unreliable since the formerly blind man was steeped in sin at birth. Now, there's a, another irony here that it's pervading the whole chapter, um, but it, it's hard to see how this particular man sinned in such a way as to deserve physical blindness. However, that spiritual blindness that we see very clearly in the Pharisees is a direct result of sin. It's their sin. It's a willful blindness against the works of God and the person of Jesus Christ. This blindness um, is much more than a result of just sin in general. It's a continuing act of sin on their part. And without acknowledgement of that sin, they won't see their need for healing from Jesus and respond to his call. Um, and as much as I really like looking in depth at different sections, it's also clear that John's gospel is really um, designed to, it's, it's clear that John's gospel is designed to reward that, but it's also important that we you kind of step back and look at the forest, not just you know, individual trees. What does this chapter teach primarily? We see Jesus restore sight to an individual, first physically, then spiritually. The miracle itself is, is hard, hard to ignore. Jesus had restored sight to a man born blind, and this is not something that you know, anyone can ignore. You know, Jesus' work requires a response. That response might be blind hostility, and we see that on the part of the Pharisees. First, they seek to discredit the sign, and when that fails, they just persecute anyone who talks about it. 
the parents of the man born blind recognize that something extraordinary has happened, but recognizing that would cost them something. And so what they want to do is they want to try to remain neutral. But you can't be neutral towards Jesus. That's not possible. Jesus has not left that option. By failing to acknowledge Jesus' work, um, they preserve their place in this world, but they miss an opportunity um, for a, a better place in a far better world that Jesus is establishing. Now, perhaps the, the parents repented of that sin. I'm not uh, speculating that, but if they continued on the path that they started on here in this chapter, um, they, they seem to be being shown to, re, um, to not respond to Jesus in faith. The man born blind begins this chapter uh, spiritually blind also. He doesn't know anything about Jesus, but unlike the characters in this chapter, he acknowledges that blindness. He never states to know something that he doesn't really know, and he acknowledges his ignorance several times. I think that's important. Um, for much of the chapter, he remains ignorant about Jesus, who Jesus is. You know, what he does know about Jesus is, uh, is that Jesus is worth knowing more and more about, and he's looking for that, and he's, he's, he sees it, and he comes to see Jesus for who he is. Um, <clears throat> but and at the end of the chapter, he's the only character that comes to see Jesus rightly. You know, everyone that's, you know, hearing the gospel is in the same situation as the characters in this story. Jesus has come. He's performed works that can't be explained away. He's died. He's risen again. And he's still giving sight to the blind in a way that's far more miraculous than just restoring physical sight. We can try to refute and suppress what Jesus has done. We could unsuccessfully try to recuse ourselves and just say, okay, well, this doesn't matter to me. This is not relevant. Or we can accept Jesus for who he is and go to him for spiritual eyesight. This chapter can profitably be viewed as a picture of salvation. What do we learn about salvation from the picture that's provided in this chapter? The man born blind is in a state of complete hopelessness at the beginning of this chapter. In the ancient world, blindness would be you know, even worse of a, a handicap than it, it is today. It would prevent him from any kind of meaningful work uh, and most meaningful activities. You know, there might be uh, a very slim amount of hope for someone that's lost their sight at some point in their life because you know, there, there were instances, maybe few and far between, where people who had lost their sight did regain it. But there's no hope at all for an individual that was born blind. And I think that's why John is emphasizing that. Yes, it, it's a greater miracle because the man was born blind, but I think the real emphasis uh, is that there, there really isn't any, any hope for him. And it, I think it also kind of fits better with the picture of salvation that John's getting that we're going to come to. Our bondage to sin and the inevi inevitability of divine judgment are a similarly hopeless state to that. I don't think it's an accident that the issue of sin comes up uh, you know, early in this chapter when the disciples are asking about the blindness. You know, the, the man may not be born blind due to his sin you know, or due to, to a specific sin of his parents, but he is blind due to the presence of sin in the world. And we're all spiritually blind uh, you know, in this world that's under sin in, in a similar way to him. We also see Jesus provide uh, sight to him apart from any request or merit. It's Jesus who sees him and uh, initiates the healing. The man born blind doesn't do anything. 
he's simply sitting there begging, and Jesus approaches him. Uh, the fact that John doesn't record anything from the blind man before that I, th- I think is important, and it's intentional on John's part. You know, Jesus' purpose for uh, healing him is to display the works of God. We, we know that because Jesus says that, um, not to reward any merit or any effort on the blind man's part. Although Jesus initiates the healing, the man participates. Uh, the man born blind obeys Jesus' command to watch, wash in the pool that's named sent. John includes that translation for a reason. He's not so much interested in that we know the actual pool where this took place, Um, but I think he's giving us a picture where believers wash in the uh, one sent from heaven. Jesus is commonly described as being sent in John's gospel. Uh, We we see that, that specific idea applied to him quite a few times. When is the man saved in this picture? And I don't think we have a clear statement of that, but I think we can kind of piece it together from the way that the, um, the analogy is intended to work. So we've, we've got some events. Jesus anoints the man's eyes with mud. Jesus instructs him to wash in the pool named Scent, and then the man obeys, washes, and, and comes back seeing. Um, there's no interaction recorded before the, the, mud, is taken, uh, the, the mud is applied to the eyes. Um, you know, the emphasis is simply on, uh, on Jesus you know, seeing an individual and initiating that healing. In this picture, I would say that since spiritual death is equated to blindness and spiritual life is equated to sight, the, the most logical place to put the man's uh, spiritual salvation is when he receives the sight. Um, that, that's what I would lean towards at least, although it, it, it might be a little speculative there. Um, so I, I think... The, the man must be saved by obeying Jesus' command to, uh, and, and washing, or, or when that happens, I, I should say. The response of the neighbors to the man's new spiritual life is kind of intriguing. Why, why is that, that, deal, that detail there? They're arguing over whether the man is the same person or not. At a surface level, John is showing that there's skepticism over, over the miracle. That, that's kind of important to the narrative. But I, I think there's a, a more important reason that this is included. Um, there's an insight into what happens through the miracle of regeneration. In a way, we still are who we were after regeneration. We're still us. We like a lot of the same foods. Our our personalities and our humor don't normally change radically uh, before and after regeneration. You know, sins that, um, you know, we tended, tended towards before regeneration are still the sins that we're likely to be tempted towards after regeneration. But in another way, we've died and we've been reborn as new creation. We see Jesus as desirable when prior to regeneration, we either hated Jesus or whatever type of idea of Jesus we had would be a character that's almost entirely different than the person of Jesus that's revealed in the scripture. The Holy Spirit begins his regenerating work When when the Holy Spirit begins His regenerating work with us, some might well say of a believer it is He. Others might well say, no, but He's like Him. Um, And I think that details there intentionally. The world can't deny that a miracle has occurred. There's no other explanation for the new birth. But the world also refuses to accept Jesus, and it will desperately look for a way to deny the miracle of regeneration. The world will pressure those who know you or, or even if that's your parents, not to validate a new believer's testimony. 
The sight given uh, to the man by Jesus does not fit the narrative that the world prefers to listen to. And he ends up facing very severe persecution simply because he was healed by Jesus and because he testifies to what Jesus did. The man born blind initially doesn't have a clear idea of who Jesus is. In his picture, he really only knows one thing. Jesus came and gave him sight. His spiritual eyesight improves over time. His first description of Jesus is simply the man called Jesus. Um, that's not a great uh, description of Jesus. There's a lot more that he should know about Jesus, but that's kind of where he starts. Next, he knows that Jesus is from God, but he only sees Jesus as a prophet. That's, it's an improvement. It's true, but it's, it's still in, inadequate. Um, you know, he, he seems to have a shallow understanding uh, elsewhere because he doesn't know where Jesus is at that particular time. And later, at, at one point, he says he doesn't know if Jesus is a sinner or not. Later, though, he reasons correctly on that same question. He, he realizes that Jesus couldn't have healed him if Jesus were a sinner. Um, so you can kind of see his uh, picture of Jesus improving and improving over time. The more he's challenged, though, the more clear it becomes that the world expects him to renounce Jesus, and the more confident he becomes in that Jesus performed a supernatural work. He was blind, but now he sees. What Jesus did for him in restoring his sight speaks louder to him than anything else in the chapter. We may not have the theological sophistication to know more than this, but um, he seems to know where to look. He, he looks to Jesus. Later, he comes to recognize that Jesus could have only healed him, um, or could only have he healed him um, if, if Jesus were um, at least a worshiper of God and, and doing God's will. In fact, if Jesus weren't from God, he could do nothing, the man realizes. He also realizes that the religious leaders, you, despite their high position and their confidence, don't know what they're talking about. He defends Jesus uh, for what he did for him, even to the point of being cast out of the synagogue. Jesus is uh, someone that everyone must confront. The man born blind, having been given spiritual sight, comes to see Jesus for who he is, and he comes to see the religious leaders for who they are. The leaders are confronted by that same information, but they go to greater and greater lengths to avoid seeing what the available information says more and more clearly. They are intentionally becoming blind in order to avoid the truth that they don't want to accept. There's an old proverb, um, there are none so blind as those who will not see. And I think that applies very <laughs> appropriately, unfortunately, to the, the religious leaders in this chapter. John recognizes that these aren't the only responses to the work of, works of God. The, the man's parents see the same works, and they're presented with the same information that everybody, everyone else in the chapter has. Their response is to try to ignore that information. As, as I mentioned, they're not very important to the story. The story would work reasonably well without them. Um, but John is including them, and I think for a very specific reason. <clears throat> um, he includes them because their response to the gospel in this episode is a very common response to the gospel, unfortunately. 
People often respond to the gospel simply by trying to avoid looking at, at the facts. They try to be interested in other things. Now, the man, the parents ended up dishonoring Jesus, you know, someone who'd healed their son by refusing to even acknowledge that fact. Um, Jesus is freely offering something far greater than uh, physical healing. He's offering spiritual healing, you know, secured at great cost to him, to every sinner on earth freely uh, when the gospel is offered to those sinners. And many dishonor Jesus in that same way by refusing to even consider or examine the healing that he's secured at such a great price. And so it, it's not possible to remain neutral. And I think John wants us to see that with the example of these parents. Incredibly, when the man born blind wins this confrontation with the Pharisees, you've got one person who probably doesn't know the, the Scripture particularly well. He's almost certainly uneducated, not skilled in reasoning and argument and rhetoric, is arguing with a dozen highly trained, highly skilled Pharisees. He wins. You, he says something that they, they simply can't refute. And you, you can see that at the end of the chapter. And rather than you know, acknowledge that you know, his side won the argument, they basically tell him to shut up. You were born in utter sin, they throw him out of the synagogue. They, they can't refute his position. They, they cast him out in frustration. <clears throat> um, he, he, he simply comes across, though, as a very ordinary person with one simple argument. He knew that Jesus did something to heal him, and he has come to realize that no amount of counter-arguments can speak as loudly as what Jesus did uh, for him and what that uh, healing from Jesus and how that healing from Jesus spoke to him. We also see in this picture of salvation that the new believer's faith is challenged. He's pressured to renounce Jesus. When the, the Pharisees come to him and say, give glory to God, that's the same expression that Joshua used uses when he confront, confronted Achan over his disobedience in keeping some of the spoils of war when God had ordered the destruction of everything in the city of Jericho. Uh, you might remember that you know, the people of God under Joshua entered the promised land. They you know, uh, destroyed this big, heavily fortified city of Jericho, and then they went up against some little podunk town of you know, uh, Ai, and they were soundly defeated. Uh, it, would be like taking, it would be like taking out Las Vegas and being defeated by Pahrump. Um, the, the reason for that is that someone had, had sinned in, in the camp and they needed to deal with that sin, and that was Achan. So Joshua goes to, to, to Achan. He, you know, he, he's found uh, by casting lots. And Joshua says, My son, give glory to, uh, to the Lord God of Israel and uh, give praise to him. And tell me now what, what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Um, I think that expression, give glory to God, that the Pharisees are saying is the same thing. They're saying, you're a sinner, uh, acknowledge it. Um, intellectually, the healed man is outnumbered and outclassed. He would be you know, an uneducated beggar, beggar as we, we mentioned. But the blind man is able to maintain his faith in Jesus with one simple fact. He was blind, and he's now able to see thanks to Jesus. Believers in Christ have received a greater healing. Our spiritual blindness has been cured, and we've been given spiritual eyesight for the first time. We can see Jesus as a beautiful Savior. We can see the logic of the gospel, uh, when that gospel would only be foolishness uh, to the unregenerate mind. And we can 
see that the only way that a sinner could hope to enjoy the presence of God is with the gospel. We were blind to those things, but now we can see them. And there, there's certainly a, a place for good sound uh, apologetics. I'm all in favor of you know, study and you know, argumentation and you know, logical support for Christianity, and there's a really good logical case for it. But um, I think confidence in these things always needs to be secondary uh, to the confidence that we should have from the work that God has done in giving us spiritual eyesight. The blind man realizes that the gift of sight could only come from God. When Jesus seeks him out, he may not know much about Christ theologically, but he's willing to learn from Jesus, and he's willing to accept Jesus' word. The story ends just as it should for someone who begins blind uh, to the person of Jesus Christ and comes to see Jesus for who Jesus ends, or who Jesus is. It ends in worship. Uh, the man born blind sees the person and work of Christ, and worship is just the natural response of any believer uh, to seeing that. And so I think that's probably a good uh, place to quit. We're right at the end of nine. We, we certainly don't have time to get into chapter 10 today, although it might not be as bad as it sounds. Um, the text of the Gospel of John is inspired. The chapter numbers aren't. And that particular chapter number, I think, is particularly uninspired. Uh, it, it, I think chapter 10 is very much you know, uh, a direct continuation, and the chapter number provides an unfortunate interruption. But it, it is still a logical uh, stopping place for today. Um, I think we do have time for a question or two, and then we'll take, uh, we'll pray. Judy. Do we, uh, we believe that the parents were sinning when they did not want to divulge? They were afraid of being, you know, excommunicated or not being able to go to the synagogue, but th that made them sinners? They weren't good people? There's two different ways to kind of look at that. It, the, this chapter is a real incident that really happened in history. Yeah. And this chapter is also organized in a way that it, it's a, a clear picture of salvation. In the picture of salvation that John's giving, I would answer unambiguously that yes, I, I think that John is showing them uh, as sinning in rejecting the information about Jesus that they, they see. Oh, and rejecting okay. Christ is sinning. Now, th th this is also a real physical healing that, that really happened. And so I, th I think what they did maybe in in that situation wouldn't be nearly as serious as rejecting the gospel. Um, I mean, clearly is it, they were religious. Is it sin so. or not? I, I would yeah. kind of lean towards yes. I mean, okay. you know, someone has come doing the works of God. Uh, um, you know, he's, he's healed a man born blind, and they are kind of stepping back from that and saying, we don't want to have anything to do with this. And I, I don't think that's okay, <laughs> even well, yeah, in the physical they were, they incident. They were probably, they were religious enough that they were scared that they mm -hmm. would lose that, so there must yeah. have been real thought behind yeah. doing it. Yeah, I, I think there was, but, you know, they, they, they should testify to, to what God did uh, over evaluating their place in the synagogue. Probably none. <laughs> they probably would have been thrown out of the synagogue too. <laughs>
but yeah. They, yeah. Did they did they feel guilty? Is the um, so the, the the question is you, when the, the Pharisees said or Jesus said to the Pharisees, you know, now that you say you you see your guilt remains, did they actually feel guilty? I'm. That that's an interesting question. Whether you know, deep down they they realized they were suppressing the truth, um, and whether they might kind of have this nagging thought, maybe I really am wrong here uh, about this, or whether they had kind of worked themselves into such a, a, a state of suppressing that truth that they um, wouldn't feel that guilt. I, I don't know. We, we can take one more question. Um, right there, he's just right there. He's just talking about that specific instance where mm. they might have felt guilty, not like the guilt that they've built up over their whole lives. Uh, yeah, well, there, there, there's a guilt that they had built up over their whole lives of you know, rejecting the gospel because the gospel is not something that's new to the New Testament. The gospel is in the Old Testament. Um, it might not be as easy to see there. But, but, but they, they says, knew it backwards and forwards, and they didn't know God. Yeah, because um, when it says your guilt remains, wouldn't they think that's, that's like the weight that they'd been carrying when Jesus says your burdens mm -hmm. are lifted now. That's, that's what they felt all the time. So how could they just... Well, there, there's two different senses of, of guilt. You, um, if you do something wrong, or even if you don't do something wrong and you think you did something wrong, you may feel a sense of guilt. But... There, there's also kind of a legal and forensic sort of sense of guilt where someone might think they were perfectly just in axe murdering somebody and might be you know, yelling all the way to the electric chair that you know, they, de they don't deserve this, but their guilt remains. They are guilty. Um, and so I think that it's the forensic sense of guilt that Jesus is talking about here. Okay, uh, I, I'm a couple minutes over now, so I'll go ahead and uh, close this quickly in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for what I've seen in, in this picture of salvation this week. I pray that all of us would you know, come away from John chapter 9 with just a better sense of what you have done with us and more uh, gratitude towards the miracle of the uh, spiritual eyesight that you have restored to us. In Jesus' name, amen.